we finish up our, our series on how you and I, every single one of us, is designed for glory. And that when you are redeemed by Christ, when you are born again, born into relationship as uh, spiritual sons and daughters of the Most High God, that Paul says in, th- in Thessalonians, he says that we become possessors of Christ's glory. That by our union with Christ, being united with Christ in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his seating at, at the right hand of the Father, that what Christ has of glory is now ours. We kind of bold that down to everything that is beautiful about Christ, everything from his love and his mercy to his wisdom and his, his power, the beauty, the magnificence of our Christ now is united to you so that it's not about your beauty but his. You're acceptable and accepted because you are in Christ and therefore loved as if you were Christ. And that, that, that leads to the fact of a, a second aspect of possessing his glory is the value and worth of Jesus has now been given over or the word is imputed to your account. His righteousness is now yours. So you're as righteous as Christ because you're in Christ. And every victory of Christ is now yours, so that, that as you face things in your life, you face those things as one with the beauty of Christ, one with the value of Christ, and one with the victory of Christ. So you're getting to talk about, okay, if I'm going to glorify God, if that's my chief end, that's, that's my purpose, is to glorify God, and to enjoy, or, or, or to experience that Trinitarian joy that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit experience. And now that I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me, I have the Trinitarian joy source within me. So how do I, how do I then live my life glorifying God? How do I serve God according to this design? And the more I read the scriptures and the more I understand the revelation of, of God's own character and the importance of God's glory, I, the discovery is we do not glorify God by providing what he needs, but we, by praying and by depending and by believing and receiving that he provides our needs and by trusting him to answer, we actually do bring him glory. We do manifest his glory by our our asking, by our depending, and by our trusting. So, Even when we are serving God, we are doing it as receivers from God, not as those who are contributing to God. Now, there is an astonishing picture of Jesus' return in Luke chapter 12. This is his second coming. And here the picture is of the master returning and he's coming, he's coming for us. Now, the, 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 the context or the, the backdrop here is a marriage feast. And in Luke 12, it says this, Stay dressed for action 
and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Now, get that astonishing picture. The master comes, those who are waiting for him and awake to him, it says he will dress himself for service and have those who are waiting for him recline at table and he will come and serve. How different is our God from all the other gods? Yes, many times in scripture we are called his servants because we're, we are meant to do exactly as he asks us or exactly as we're told. But this master insists on serving even in the age to come. In 2 Thessalonians, in the age to come, Jesus will appear in all his glory and with him will be his mighty angels in flaming fire. The very heart of the glory of God, though, and the glory of our Christ is not people serving him, The glory of our Christ and the beauty of our Christ is the fullness of his grace that overflows in service and kindness to those who admit their need, who are willing to watch, wait, and be awake. See, when he returns in victory, in glory, he's going to show forth, Ephesians 2, 7 says, the immeasurable riches not of just how powerful or beautiful majestic is, but listen to this, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And he will show it in kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. The glory of God is his grace. The glory of our Christ is his grace. God loves to serve. God loves to meet you in your needs. This is the uniqueness of our God. This is the greatness of our God. Isaiah said it this way, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him, who works for those who wait for him. See, all the other so-called gods exalt themselves and they make others do their work for them. The picture sometimes is like these ancient kings who are sitting on the throne with with servants fanning them and servants feeding them. That is not our God. Our God says the gods who have to have men wait on them are weak. As a matter of fact, Isaiah derides such weakness. In Isaiah 46, he says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beast and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. See, in other words, they have, they're so weak, they have to be carried by oxen. They have to be carried in carts. Jeremiah also goes after the gods, the false gods that the Israelites were worshiping. He says their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak, they have to be carried, for they can not walk. Our God is unique. 
For of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. And his uniqueness is that he aims not for us to be the workman, but for him to be the workman for us. Jesus says he'll change out of his festive robes, put on a servant's robes, and, and in all eternity, he will have you recline at table so he may wait on you. That's what Jesus said. And the psalmist and Isaiah, Jeremiah, reflect back that God is all-sufficient and that he has called upon us to wait upon him, even, even in desperate situations, even in what seems like I'm going to lose or I'm going to fail, to wait on the Lord, to consider and to realize our own inadequacy, but also to call upon the Lord's all-sufficiency, that in whatever circumstance you're in, to seek his counsel, to 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 believe for help from the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, and therefore to put our hope and our trust in him. One of the biggest rebukes that I Isaiah, Isaiah um, not Isaiah, that Israel, one of the biggest rebukes that Israel received in Psalm 106 is that they did not wait for the counsel of the Lord. See, they, they did not seek and wait for God's help. They moved on their own and in their own strength. And so instead of waiting on the Lord so that he became their help and therefore he became their delight, they stole his glory because they refused to give him the place that he deserved as their God. The Lord says to Israel in Isaiah 30, in returning and rest, you shall be saved, and quietness and trust shall be your strength. But Israel refused to wait for the Lord and said, no, we will flee upon horses. So then in Isaiah 30, verse 18, it says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself. In other words, what he's saying is when the situation you face gets bigger than you are, the Lord exalts himself to be bigger than the situation. But he does it not because you deserve it or not because you've earned it, but because he loves to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. When you do not wait and depend on the Lord, when you do not trust and rest in the Lord, you forfeit the blessing of having the Lord work for you. The evil of not waiting for God is that we actually oppose God's will to show himself in your circumstances glorious, to reveal his grace to you, his mercy, to reveal his beauty and his value. The Lord is jealous to work for you, but it requires you wait on him. He, he becomes bigger than life to those who wait for him. So prayer is basically the essential activity of waiting for God. Prayer is a way that you express your helplessness, but you call upon his power. By calling upon him for help, by seeking his counsel, you're actually serving him in the way you were designed, and he is operating in the way that he has revealed. He wants his mercy in your life to be visible, 
For his mercy does not exalt you, it exalts him. Prayer is the only way to really avail yourself of the mercy that you need in the situations that you face. So prayer is primary in glorifying God because it's the antidote for the disease we have of self-confidence and self-reliance. And any self-confident person, any self-reliant person, even in ministry, is living in opposition to God's, God's goal, God's passion, which is he wants you to wait on him because in waiting on him, he will delight you in giving you the help that you need, the mercy that you need, the grace that you need. And he wants to reveal how glorious he is to you and you're not letting him. Listen to what Second Chronicles 16 says. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those who, whose heart is blameless towards him. God never rests in the desire that he has and the ability that he has to, I love this, to give strong support. But what, what is he asking of you is that your heart would not turn to self-confidence, self-protection, self-reliance, that your heart out of fear would not anxiously then try to perform what only he can perform for you and delight you with. God is not looking for people who will work for him, but he's really looking for people who will let him work for them. The gospel is never a help-wanted ad. And the call to Christian service that glorifies God commands us to actually give up thinking we are fulfilling a help-wanted classified ad, and instead we are hanging out in our prayers a help-needed sign. This is basically, you see, the meaning of your prayers is the help-needed It's not you answering to help wanted. It's you answering to your life situation with help needed. And the promise of God and the gospel makes clear because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, his resurrection, his being seated at the right hand of the Father. It makes it clear that God will work for you if you put out your help needed sign. He's not going to surrender the glory of being the giver but he will provide strong help. And this only comes as we wait upon him. Um, Everybody's personality is somewhat different. Um, I knew even in my 20s that I wanted to start churches or I wanted the opportunity to, in a sense, remake churches into the vision that I had for a healthy church or for an active church or for a loving church or all of these things. So, so I knew very young that I wanted to be in this idea. And Paul's words were, you, you do not, he did not want to build on another apostle's foundation always resonated with me. But the problem was, that, that because I had this drivenness and because I had this vision and because I had, you know, these, these strong desires to work and to initiate things, I was very self-reliant and I was very confident 
in my education, in my talents, in my, my own vision. Sometimes I, I look back and think I was fairly drunk on my vision. And, and what did the Lord do? Uh, he slowed me down. And the more he slowed me down, the more my impatience came out, my intolerance for those who didn't move as fast as I did or who didn't do it the way I thought the right way to do it. And so what he was revealing wasn't that that my personality was wrong or that my my gifting was wrong or that my talents were wrong or any of those, or even that what I wanted to do was wrong. But what was wrong was more deep. It was a bigger issue. I had not learned to pray first. I did not pray waiting on God. I did not know how to wait on God without getting anxious, without getting angry, without getting sometimes just wanting to give up and turning to other coping mechanisms which weren't healthy. And so the Lord, in his wisdom, was taking what he had wired in me and taking taking what he had destined for me, but he was also saying, there has to be a submission to the Holy Spirit's curriculum. Because in a way, you can't you can't pastor churches, you can't start churches, you can't you can't build churches as a vision if you don't if there isn't love, if there isn't patience, if if there isn't a breaking of the selfishness and the pride. And so he was brilliant in this and teaching me that what I longed to see, what I wanted to see was not going to happen in my own strength, my own inadequacy to fulfill the dreams and visions I had in my heart was so clear to me. And, and as he worked so perfectly and brought the right circumstances into my life and the right timing, I learned that the most important thing for me was to wait on him. Because I can't, even if I do things well, I can't handle the glory of those things. Because what, like Paul says, what do I have that I've not received? So in all the things that I work and you work and that we do, we're all stewards. We're all, we're not, in a sense, we're not the masters of our gifts. The master has given us our gifts to steward. And he has this perfect curriculum for how to take the dreams that you have and the visions that you have and teach you how to wait on him. That it's not a help wanted sign, but it's a help needed sign that has to, has to come from your life. And that that never changes. That he is always the giver and you are always the receiver. So what then can I give to the Lord? Well, it's really clear. And this became very clear to me in my impatience, in my anger. And, and what it was, was my anxiety. I mean, this is a command in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him. Now, I, I'm giving you the illustration of, of trying to start churches, of trying to revitalize churches, of doing these these works that God 
uh, a sign for me and for Lisa to do together. But we're talking about parenting. We're talking about marriage, relationships. We're talking about the relationship with your work, your career, your ambitions. We're talking about all of the things that create uh, anxiety because they matter to you, because they're important to you. You're not anxious about things that don't matter. The anxiety itself is a diagnostic symptom that something that matters to you is threatened. A result, an outcome, a relationship, a person, a situation is threatened and you feel anxiety. And so what does the Lord say? You want to give to me something that is really valuable? Give me your anxieties. Because he will gladly receive. Because by giving him what you're anxious for and yielding it to him and offering it to him, you're revealing that he is ultimate, not this situation, not this person, not this outcome. And what you're doing is saying, Lord, you are all sufficient to me. This does matter to me. This is important to me, but I'm depending on you. And obviously, the, the greater we are in touch and aware of our needs, then his words become really, really more and more significant to us. Notice he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Christianity, your faith, your relationship with God is fundamentally resting and recovering. In a sense, we are on this earth in in the hospital, not just the curriculum of the Holy Spirit, but the healing hospital of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a, a need for continual dependence and of expressing needs to God as you face the circumstances of your life. So in a sense, when I've been in the hospital, one of the things that I've had to do, uh, particularly after my my uh, heart surgery and my heart attack and these different things, is the buzzer was uh, crucial for me. I'd have to buzz the nurse because there were certain things that I could not do on my own or that would be dangerous for me to do on my own. So in a sense... Pray without ceasing is recognizing there are things that matter to me that I can't do on my own, and so I have to keep buzzing the nurse. In a way, you could look at it this way. If you really have come to Christ, you've come to him as the physician of your soul, your spirit, your life. Patients do not serve the physicians. They trust the prescriptions. So the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches us about life in the kingdom and the Ten Commandments, where God teaches his people how to be his people, they are prescribed health regiments. They're not not the employee's job description. So as we look at this, we start to get a new perspective on what work is for God and what work is not. And Romans 4 is probably one of the most important places to understand how God looks at your efforts and your energies given. Listen to what he says, Paul says here. He says, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, 
but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, that's you, his faith or her faith is counted as righteousness. So you get, you have a choice. Are you the workman or are you the receiver of the gifts? So the workmen get no gifts. They only get what they're due. So if we would really be people who understand we've only come into a right relationship with the Father by faith, not by works, and that this this acceptance we have with the Father where he loves us as if we were Jesus is a gift. It's neither earned nor deserved. So we dare not try to work now to gain an acceptance that we already have which is basically by thinking you're not accepted, it's just, it's an insult, it's a belittling to the cross of Jesus Christ. But if you are, you know you're accepted by God, then everything else out of that flows from acceptance. You're not working for acceptance, you're working from acceptance. And the worker in all of this has to stay God. And you must trust him. And trusting him opens up for the gift to flow. Now, here's the thing. As hard as you work, it will never satisfy you. But to receive the gift is abundance. Because it comes from his grace. It comes from his glory, his beauty, his victory, his value. It's not not you being a beneficiary of service. It's you being a child of the king. You know, Christians have wrestled with with this since the beginning. Paul said to the Galatians, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, he's saying God was the one doing the work in our justification. Now God is the one doing the work in our sanctification. The problem is all of us have some form of religious flesh. Even atheists have religious flesh. And it's always a thing of of trying to earn or get our due from God. Instead of humbling ourselves to realize that this is all a gift of God, a gift of his free grace, which most, his grace most evidently declares his glory. And look, this is dangerous. If you live according to the flesh, Romans 8, 13 says, you will die. So in a way, when we're trying to work for God and get leverage with God and get our due from God, our lives are hanging on the very balance of that. And you say to me, well, then should I not serve Christ? Because Romans 12, 11 says, serve the Lord. And those who do not serve the Lord are rebuked in Romans 16, 18. Yes, we must serve him, but we will, we will beware of serving in a way that implies some kind of deficiency on his part or that exalts our indispensability. I, I can remember the day <laughs> where this truth became so real to me. Um, I struggled 
with a lot of depression. I struggled with a lot of unhappiness, some chemical imbalances in my brain and, and, and in my heart. And, and one of the things was that I had these big, you know, I had big dreams. I had, I had vision. I had all those things and nothing was quite turning out. And as often happened, I had some of my best uh, sessions with God, uh, sessions with the, with the Spirit, when I, when I was cutting grass, mowing the lawn. And as, as I was mowing the lawn, I just had this incredible conversation with God. And, and it started off out of disappointment and anger and saying, Lord, uh, you know, is this all there is? And and why, you know, why doesn't this happen? And why doesn't it feel like this? And, you know, will I, will I ever be happy? Will I ever, you know, all kinds of stuff. And just questioning him and, and, and struggling with the circumstances in my life and struggling with my own emotions. And all of a sudden it got really clear to me. All that's happening to me is bringing up all of this, all of these destructive places in my heart, all this impatience, all this selfishness, all this self-centeredness. It's all coming up. So he has put me in this situation where I had to look at what was causing my depression, what was causing my unhappiness, what was causing my restlessness. And I kept thinking, if you just change my circumstances, if you just give me some more success, if you just, you know, and I had all of these things, solutions figured out of how I wouldn't be so unhappy. And the Lord was saying, do you not see? It is my grace that has put you in this position. Do you not see that this is my goodness forcing up what you would not look at? Forcing up so I can heal you. And even as I'm telling you this, something radically changed that day where I, I wasn't saying, I've stopped saying like, if times are rough, God is not good. And if times are, are, are you know, happy, then God is good. And I started to realize, you know, the truthfulness and, and, made a rock-solid commitment that whether the bad stuff in me was being forced up or the circumstances that I was living through were, were, were times of fruitfulness and success, that whatever circumstance I was in, I made a rock-solid commitment. This is the grace of God. This is the goodness of God. And I will not be moved away from trust and dependence on his goodness. And when I was more in that lawn, nothing changed in terms of circumstances. The church I was pastoring didn't get better. You know, all kinds of success didn't come my way. But I turned a corner from which I've never looked back. Where I wasn't constantly questioning the goodness of God, the grace of God. I was recognizing God was at work and he's always working. And his work is always grace-filled because that's his glory. And at that moment of brokenness was a moment of goodness, not a moment of punishment. For he was using the pressure 
of the circumstances that I didn't like and that I didn't want to force me to see the character that he was developing. And though the circumstances did not immediately change, I changed. And what's very interesting as I try to close this out (laughs) is that when the circumstances did change, instead of giving myself glory for having worked so hard, instead of giving myself wages, pats on the back for having done such a good job, instead I knew, I knew the glory belonged to the Lord. And I knew that the goodness of the Lord was being experienced by me in the land of the living and that surely goodness and mercy had been following me all the days of my life. And so one of the the themes this week, in this last week of our design for glory is the constancy of God. When I was faithless, he was faithful. When circumstances were difficult, he was still faithful. And when he brought the fruitfulness out of seasons of barrenness, it was to his glory. And I got to have the delight. This is the way it is. We ask for help because he is the God of glory. And then he reveals and exalts himself over the situation because you waited on him. He gets the glory, but you get the delight. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart.